Uh, we are in Exodus, so please grab your Bibles uh, and make your way to Exodus chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, please slip your hand up. We want to make sure you have one so that you're following along with us. Okay, okay. Exodus chapter 24. So we've been in Exodus for a little bit, okay? And as you walk through a book like Exodus, there's a lot in there that communicates how distant God is. And for many of us, we may feel that that's the case, that God is distant and He's separate. You start out in Genesis, and as soon as Adam and Eve bit the fruit, they were ousted from the garden. Distance. Right? Uh, and then God is on top of a mountain, and they're not allowed to touch the mountain. You remember that in Exodus? They can't touch the mountain. Even if one of their animals came up and touched the base of the mountain, that animal would die. God is untouchable. He's unapproachable. The result of that, if we understand it wrongly, we can read verses like God is love, or He's compassionate, but not really buy it. Because what we are stuck on is that God is distant and so separate that we feel kind of left alone. Uh, maybe you've been coming to church for a long time and you, know, you, you understand some things about the faith, but deep down in your heart you just don't feel assured that you are in a, in a good relationship with God. I think this is why so many other religions are attractive to people because maybe it's I have to pray five times a day and face a certain direction. Maybe I have to approach a confession booth. Maybe I have to say certain prayers. Maybe I have to pray to certain saints. You see, it's attractive because these are things that in our minds, maybe this closes the gap because there's this big gap between me and God. And what I want to explain to you today is that uh, there is distance, but that God relates with His people. How do we know that? We know that first. We know it's possible because He communicates that He wants it. God does not communicate that He likes that distance. He communicates the opposite. There's distance, and He doesn't like the distance. He wants closeness. He wants relationship. Do we wait to get to Jesus to get that? Nope. The Old Testament revelation of God, this mountain-dwelling, fiery cloud, lightning bolt-surrounded God, wants a relationship with you. So to see that, we're going to take a huge chunk of Exodus. We're going to be between Exodus 24 and Exodus 31. We're not going to read every verse. We're just going to see some snippets, but I do encourage you on your own time to read through Exodus as we make our way through it at church. But we left off in Exodus, in the middle of chapter 24. And what we have in these verses from 24 verse 12, so if you want to read it all the way through later, here's the chunk, because we, we put it down wrong. I say we, I put it wrong in the bulletin, so I apologize for that. This week's passage is Exodus 24, 12 to 31, 18, all the way to the end of 31. 24, 12 to 31, 18. That's a big chunk. 
Why are we taking one sermon for that whole chunk? Well, because it's a unit that belongs together. Moses starts out by going up to go get the commandments, and the unit ends by him coming down with the tablets. In between Moses going up and getting the tablets and coming down and getting the tablets, we have this long uh, section, unit, on God establishing how he's going to relate to these people that are distant from him, how he's going to do it, how he's going to cross that gap. And he communicates that he wants to do it. So he's going to set up a tabernacle for him to dwell with his people. But there's a lot that goes into the setting up of the tabernacle. He tells them to recruit certain materials. You're going to get the finest materials. You're not going to do this out of cotton and polyester. This isn't going to be a 50-50 blend curtain. Okay? This is going to be silk, and this is going to be scarlet threads that are kind of difficult to find and hard to procure, but you can get it. You have access. Plus, they just plundered the Egyptians, if you remember that. The Egyptians were like, here, take all their stuff and go. So they've got stuff. They've got to get certain skins. Some translators uh, translate one of the skins that they had to procure as dolphin skins. I'm like, dolphin skins? And one of the commentators I get, they're in the Red Sea. They had to go fish dolphins, get the skins to make this stuff. Gold, silver, bronze to make the sanctuary, to make the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cover that goes on top of it. Acacia wood was the only uh, allowed wood to make the poles so that you don't touch the gold. And so, so much detail. And you maybe read through this in your quiet times and you're like, this many cubits wide by this many cubits tall. The curtains have to be here and the beams have to be overlaid with gold. Think details. God is communicating to them that this has to be done right because we can't just go take a hike together. We can't just relate, you know. We can't just go meet up at a coffee shop and try this out and see how it works, right? This isn't eHarmony or something, right? This is exacting specifications, and if you're off by a hair, this can't work. But God is communicating that he wants it because why is God going through all these details, make all this furniture, make all these tents, and make all these curtains and with cherubim on it and, and make sure they're facing the right way and make sure they each have their sets of wings. And it's an exacting specification. It's a model of what already exists in heaven. So God reveals to Moses a pattern that already exists, but we can't go to heaven. So what does God do? He's going to come to us in just a model a representation of what's real. And we don't just get to make up what that looks like. It takes the exacting specs and blueprints that he lays out. But if you consider this whole section on God setting up a tent to dwell with his people, look at the progress of things, right? They were 400 years not hearing a peep from God. They were 400 years slaves 400 years, they remember back, you know, grandpa heard from great-grandpa who heard from great-great-grandpa about Abraham, who's supposedly our forefather, you know, and, and God told Abraham that he's going to get us out, but here we are, making bricks, hauling lumber, and working for a people not our own. So there's this huge distance. God is silent for 400 years. And then he starts meeting with them. A burning bush, top of the mountain, a pillar of cloud, right? It's smoky and it's dangerous and it's fiery, but now he's there revealing himself to his people. Now he goes from the top of this mountain into a tent 
among the tents. That's a progress of God showing that he's coming to dwell with us. All the initiative is on God's end. We can't get to him, but he comes to us. So I want to point your attention to some of the passages that emphasize that God wants it. Because maybe some of us in our minds, God is just kind of a mean, distant God. He kind of likes that distance. He kind of is waiting for you to mess up so you can be like, see, that's why we can't relate to one another. And that's not God's heart. If you fast forward a little bit to chapter 25, look at verse 8. He's already giving uh, his specs for how we're going to put the sanctuary together, how they're going to get the materials needed to put the sanctuary together. So there's oil for lamps, and there's fragrant incense, and there's onyx stones, verse 7, and then verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? Why does God want to do this? For a bunch of rules? For boring, quiet times when you're stuck in the middle of Exodus? No. He's doing it so that I may dwell in their midst. I don't want to be on the top of a mountain where they're way down there and can't access me. I want them to have access to me. I want them to be with me. So set up the sanctuary, not for a bunch of rules. The rules are to facilitate my being in their midst. That's radical. If you look at verse 22, same chapter, verse 22. They're going to do this Ark of the Covenant. And they're going to put in the Ark the testimony that he's giving Moses. And then verse 22 There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat I will speak with you. See, that's a relationship. Being with someone, speaking with someone. God wants that relationship. Look at verse 30, same chapter, chapter 25, verse 30. They're supposed to make this table. He tells them how to make this table how to get all the, you know, the four corners, his legs, the frame, the rings that go on it, so they can carry the table. And then he says in verse 30, you shall set on the table the bread of the presence. What presence? God's presence. This whole table is to remind you that I'm here. I'm here among you. I'm in your midst. Go ahead a little bit to chapter 29. Chapter 29. Now we're getting into the thick of the tabernacle and and what it's for. At the end of, towards the end of chapter 29, verses 42 and following, we'll be doing some flipping around like this, but I just want you to see it there. It talks about the burnt offering that is to be regular and throughout their generations. He says, you'll bring it at the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. To meet with you and to speak with you. To meet with you and to speak with you. That's a relationship. And who's the one initiating it? God is the one initiating it. Who's the one providing it? God is the one providing it. Who's the one that wants it? God is the one that wants it. Verse 45, if you look down, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I may dwell among them. I'm the Lord their God. 
He didn't rescue them out of Egypt to just kind of be far away from them. He didn't rescue them out of Egypt to be distant. He rescued them out of Egypt to be close and to dwell in their midst. Now that's a God that loves and makes sure that he overcomes the barriers so that we can have a relationship. Last one, chapter 30, verse 36. He's telling Moses details again, right, in verse 34. Take sweet spices, a bunch of stuff you can't pronounce. Even the commentators don't know if they're even getting these right, okay? You're making incense, a blended incense, as an offering to the Lord. And then specifically, he, you take olive oil, like beaten olive oil, and make it very small, put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. The tent is even called the tent of meeting, and that's where I will meet with you, and it shall be most holy for you. So God is communicating this great meetup that's going to happen continually. He's going to be with his people meeting with them. And so this fiery, dangerous, untouchable God dwells among his people, and we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. God doesn't do it because they've learned how to live perfect lives. Now that you're so awesome and you've proven yourself, now I'm going to dwell with you. Nope. They haven't even had a chance. They just got the law. They haven't even had a chance. And he's saying, it's not based on your obedience. It's based on the fact that I want to relate with you. But then there's a lot of other verses that communicate the danger of this relationship, that this relationship is dangerous. Why is this relationship dangerous? Look where we just looked, right? We just looked at these spices, this incense that they have to offer, this oil that they're supposed to offer. But then he says, if you misuse it, you'll be cut off. Verse 38, chapter 30, verse 38. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Like, wow, this smells really good. Let me save some extra in my pocket for my date later tonight and splash it on your neck. He's like, don't do that. You will lose. You'll be cut off from your people. If you look at verses 20 and 21, same chapter, chapter 30, verses 20 and 21. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, these are the priests, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Now, most of us, we remember when we were kids, no matter how many times mom told you, wash your hands. Have you washed your hands? Go wash your hands. Let me guess, you didn't wash your hands. Imagine that if you missed one time washing your hands, you'd die. How many of us would be here? That's what he just said. Make sure they wash in that little basin, that bronze basin. Wash your hands. Go in without washing your hands. You're dead. Verse 14 of chapter 31. He talks about keeping the Sabbath, and I think the reason why he brings the Sabbath up here again is because people, you know, they might think, look, we're building a sanctuary, it's a lot of materials, it's a lot of hard work, and we want to get this done, and it's for the Lord's work, it's for the Lord's glory, so let me just 
work a little bit on the Sabbath. And he's like, no, don't do that. Even if it's for the purpose of the tabernacle, you'll still die. Which he says in verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So you see there that cut off doesn't just mean, okay, you don't, you don't get to live with Israel anymore. It's death. Verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. It's only two chapters ago in chapter 28. And 42 and 43. I don't want to sound awkward in the middle of a sermon. I know we're in church and stuff, but he basically tells them, make yourselves underwear. Because if you come into my holy place without undies, you're dead. That's what he says. What I, what I find amazing about that, he says, make these undergarments, and he tells them how high, long to do it, from the waist to the thigh and, you know, lest they bear guilt and die ministering in the holy place. So we see that he wants to dwell with his people, he wants to be with his people, but then there's all this, but if you don't do this, you're going to die, and if you don't do this, you're going to die. Well, which one is it? Do you want to be with us? Do you want to kill us? He doesn't want to kill us, but he can't change the rules without changing himself. He can't make himself unholy. He can't say, well, you can't be holy, so let me see. How about I just sin? No. He's a holy, righteous God, and he's just. So he wants to be with us, but we kind of can't. You know, they have to do everything exactly. How nervous would I be if I was a priest and not a pastor? If I was a high priest in those days, I'd be like, am I wearing the ephod right? Did I remember? Oh, I forgot the turban with the plate. You know, a stone fell out. I'm only representing half of Israel. Or the other half of the tribes that, that fell off, we got to glue this back or something. I'd be a nervous wreck walking in there. How long do I wash my hands? You know, that, do I, can I not approach now? Do I have to dry my hands? Like, I, I just would be nervous to make sure that every specification is met and is correct. Is that silver? Is that fool's gold? Is that the right material? So many specifications that would make me, for one, nervous to approach this God. But on the other hand, he's commanding us to approach because what he desires is this relationship. He desires to have this relationship. So how is the dilemma solved? God wants a relationship with his people, but there's all these rules that inevitably they're going to break. They're going to break the Ten Commandments. They're going to they're gonna mess up a lot, fail. They're going to doubt. They're going to not have faith. So how does he bridge this gap between his desire to be with his people in relationship and the fact that we can't do it? The priesthood. This whole section has this middle piece. You've heard me talk about it before where um, uh, some Bible passages work like a sandwich. You have your pieces of bread that are exactly the same. Remember, Moses goes up to get the law. Moses comes down with the law. There's your bracket. Those are your bookends, okay? There's your sandwich. And then there's a, 
it's symmetrical. There's a layer of lettuce, lettuce, tomato, tomato, meat in the middle. So when a Bible author does something like that, what they're doing is pointing you to this importance in the middle. This thing in the middle is the point of this entire sandwich, okay? Now, sometimes a sandwich could be a paragraph long, a couple sentences long. In this case, it's all the way from 2412 to 3118. And the meat in the middle is the functioning priesthood because that's how the dilemma is solved. How is God going to relate to his people and deal with the fact that they push God away with their disobedience? We're the ones that have to wash our hands, not God. We're the ones that keep getting our hands dirty, not God. So we create the distance, but God keeps chasing. He keeps pursuing. He keeps wooing. We're the ones that keep going off track. So how does he handle our disobedience and yet his desire to be with us, even though we create this wall of separation? The priesthood. What is a priest? A priest is a go-between. A priest is a mediator. A priest goes between this holy God and this disobedient people, taking the disobedience of the people, bringing it before God, and through offerings and incense and sacrifice and observing the rites and the rules, uh, secures an atonement for the disobedient people so that God can relate to these people and the people can relate to God, so that he can continue dwelling in their midst. The priesthood is the glue that allows the relationship to happen. That is not an Old Testament truth. That is a forever truth. That is always going to be true for a sinful people. We need priests to go between. So they would take, for instance, a bull and lay hands on that bull. And most commentators understand that laying hands on the bull is a transference of the sins of the people. We're taking the sins of the people and putting it on this bull. This bull didn't do anything, right? It doesn't have its own things to atone for. That's why it can supposedly take the sins of the people. We can put it on it, and then we sacrifice the bull, and there's blood all over the altar. They splash blood on the base of the altar. There's blood on top of the altar. When they kill two rams, they take the blood of one of those rams, and they put it on the ears of the priest, meaning you're clean now. The priests need to be atoned for. They're sinners too. All right, so there's blood all over the place. Again, we've seen that before. And it's God securing an atonement so that he can keep his relationship with the people. But the people can't just be sacrificing animals all over the place. It's according to a system that's managed by priests, and it always has to be that way. The priests bridge that gap for us. So as you read through it, the priests had to be really careful. And there's so much about what God lays out here, this closeness that he desires, yet this distance. Because half of the furniture had big rings on it and they had to put poles through it because they can't touch the furniture. They can't touch the altar. They can't touch the Ark of the Covenant. They, they have to put poles through it and leave the poles there. But they still have to approach and they still have to take the sins of the people and take care of those sins before God. But this priesthood didn't work. That's why they needed a new one. Why didn't it work? Because the sins of the priests are sinful, and they have to keep going back to do it. Right? They would sin, and then they come back. Another ram. In fact, God didn't say, hey, every time you mess up, come bring an animal. He didn't say that. He says, bring an animal every day. 
twice a day. Do one in the morning and then kill another one at twilight. He didn't say based on your sins, based on how much you messed up, just do it. What does that mean? He knows they're going to mess up. You mess up even when you don't know you messed up. If it was based, if we were in the sacrificial system and I brought a lamb just when I thought I messed up, I'd be dead. I just gathered sticks. Who cares if it's the Sabbath? I was just making a fire. We're cold. I was hammering the lampstand for, for the tabernacle. I thought you told me to do that. Yeah, but not on the Sabbath. You're dead. Oh, I forgot to wash my hands. It's just symbolic, isn't it, God? It's just symbolic. It's not actually cleaning my sins. It's water. The water itself is dirty. It's not Aquafina, you know? No. You'll be cut off. And so the priesthood was temporary because the priesthood in the Old Testament never handled the sins. It did it symbolically. It did it as a type of a better solution, but it didn't actually take care of this. It didn't actually wash them. It didn't actually cleanse them. The blood on the priest didn't actually cover the priest because it was an animal that died. And animals didn't sin. Man sinned. Man has to pay the price, not rams. And so it, it didn't, it wasn't the solution. It wasn't the final solution. And this is why God brings Jesus into the picture to be the perfect high priest to assure our relationship with God. To assure our relationship with God. He brings in a new covenant. You might go, why did he have the old covenant if, he was, if it wasn't going to work and to bring in the new one? Because the old one is a picture that represents what the new one is. We understand Christ's priesthood by reading these texts. So we don't want to go Old Testament, candlesticks, tables, altars. This is weird. This is totally irrelevant. I just want Jesus, the carpenter in blue jeans that walks, takes long walks with me on the beach and just tells me how chummy we are. No, Jesus is a priest so that you don't die. And to help you understand that, you need to spend time in these texts where animals are getting cut up and disemboweled and they're spewing blood everywhere and there's curtains and there's separation and it's beautiful. The temple is beautiful. It's gold and silver and the entire thing is laden in gold, silver, and bronze. As the sun peeks in through the edges of the curtain, the sunbeams are bouncing off this metallic sheen and it's gorgeous in there. The garments, he tells them, these garments are made this way with jewel, precious stones all over them, the ephod, for glory and for beauty. So God shows that he's beautiful through all these specific pieces of furniture and tabernacle and curtains and tents, but then also communicates, but you can't have this beauty. You can't be with this glory. I want you to, but you can't. And the only way you can get this beauty and get this glory is if a perfect priest comes that doesn't sacrifice animals and doesn't sacrifice little goats and little rams, but he sacrifices himself because he's not an animal. He's man. But he's a man who doesn't have to pay for his own sins. And because he doesn't have to pay for his own sins, he can represent the rest of humanity and go in there as his own sacrifice. So they always needed Jesus, and we need Jesus. 
There's no being cut off from God. There's no being cut off from Him if Christ is your priest. The paranoia is gone. You don't wonder, oh, did I wash my hands right? Oh, wait, did I wear a garment right? That's gone now because the new covenant works. The old one didn't, but the new one works. And so if Christ is your priest, you don't have to worry. Did Christ wash his hands correctly? I hope that worked. In the Old Testament, I hope that priest worked. That priest is taking a long time. I don't hear the bells jingling anymore. I think maybe he went in and he messed up. Something's starting to stink. Okay, sneak a pole in there and drag him out, man. We need that ephod. In fact, later in the Old Testament, you'll see priests that offer strange fire to the Lord, and they're burned up and they're killed, but the garments are intact. The people were sinful, but the garments, God protected the garments so that the next priest, next priest could do it, you know, until they mess up. And so you don't really know if you're getting it in the Old Testament. And religions today, they're still stuck in that mode. Do you pray enough? Do you say it enough? And you'll notice when you walk into this church, there is no confession booth. You don't come into church and tell me your sins, and I try to figure out, now, how many things do you need to do to cancel out what you just did because you just brought yourself here and you got to get yourself back up here. And so go to the altar and say this many of this kind of prayer to absolve, to get it back, right? Well, that's gone. And that's not gone because I don't mess up anymore. It's gone because I have a priest that took care of things once and for all. One time and it's over. No one in the morning, one at twilight, every time you mess up. It covers all of it. The sin in your heart right now, the sin you committed on your way to church, the thing you did last week that you still haven't confessed to anyone yet, the thing you're going to do tomorrow, covered. God doesn't just cover us in Christ, past tense, and then from here on out you have to kind of just stay above water but it covers past, present, future, all of it. Because Christ doesn't keep going in and being re-sacrificed. Sacrifice one time. And so, because my relationship with God is not based on a human priest, it's not based on me being a priest, it's based on a sinless, perfect priest. And if Christ's ministry is successful, then I have an assured relationship with God. If you're in here this morning and you just kind of feel like God is distant, you're not sure if he really loves you. I know the Bible says he loves me, but I'm not sure because I mess up a lot. He gets angry. I feel like we're just kind of far right now. You don't understand the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You might think he did a half job. You might think he did a partial job. You might think Christ's priesthood kind of gives you a boost or opens the door, but you've got to finish going, and that's not what the Bible communicates. All they needed in the Old Testament was for priests to cover the sins of the people. The sins were assumed. All they needed was priests to cover it. But the priests couldn't exactly cover it because they only could sacrifice animals and they couldn't sacrifice themselves because they were sinners. Jesus Christ solves that. And so we don't need it to be repeated. And if Christ's priesthood is perfect and forever, there's no condemnation for his people. I want to show you three passages quickly in the book of Hebrews. You can turn there, but I think we're going to have them up on the screen. You can follow along on the screen as well. 
We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 4 and then two spots in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm flipping through and I forgot I bookmarked it. All right. Hebrews chapter 4. Here's what he says in verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, he didn't go into the fake tent, the model tent. He went into the real thing. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because he's our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what should we do? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near how? In confidence. Remember I described being paranoid about, did I wash my hands? Did I do this right? He's saying that was appropriate under the old priesthood, That kind of approach is not appropriate under Christ's priesthood. Under Christ's priesthood, the appropriate approach is confidence. Not, is he going to kill me? It's it's a relationship, and it's assured. But what about the thing I did last night? And what about the thing I still struggle with? Confidence. Not based on your performance, but based on Christ's performance as priest. If we don't understand that, we'll be relegated to a Christianity, a version of Christianity that still has that paranoia and a difficulty to relate to God's loving willingness to be in a relationship with us. So we draw near for help, he says, in a time of need. He doesn't mean, you know, when you lost your job or you need a few dollars, you know, to help you find your way because you're lost, your GPS isn't working. I mean, you can pray for that, but what he's talking about time of need, he's saying don't fall away, don't disobey, don't forsake the covenant, don't, don't just go, eh, whatever with God's laws. No, follow them, because you can draw near to a God who wants you to obey, and he wants to equip you to be able to obey. God is not one that says, obey all these rules. And then he tells the angels in heaven, let's see what he's got. Let's see what he's got. I want to see if he can do it. No, he's saying approach with confidence and he'll give you what you need and especially through a high priest who's been there, done that. In a human way, he knows what it's like to be weak and to struggle and to be tempted. Hebrews chapter 10. Just a few verses there. Chapter 10. Look at verse 12. I'll look back up to verse 11. It may not be on the screen, but here's what verse 11 says. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. So when you read a verse like that, you see the difference between the old sacrificial system and the new one. And one of those differences is in the old one, you had to keep things going 
otherwise you're dead. Keep things going, otherwise you're cut off. Stay the line, otherwise you lose. And this one he's saying, that's what it used to be like, and those things never actually took away sins. Even if you washed the hands and wore the garment and the priest did the thing he was supposed to do, it still didn't actually take away sins. You know how you know? Because next morning, crack it on, you got to kill another animal. But Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' priesthood is perfect to the point that you understand that it doesn't matter what you did, what you're going to do, what you're doing right now. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his ministry as a priest. And therefore, you can draw near knowing it's okay. It's okay to draw near. Verses 21 to 23 of the same chapter. This will be our last stop. Verses 21 to 23, chapter 10, Hebrews. It says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what's the conclusion? Well, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water this time, right? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So the conclusion there, if Jesus is our high priest, then you should draw near with what kind of conscience? Clear. Do you have a clear conscience? That's different from asking, are you sinless? Are you perfect? We'd all have to say no to that, but do you have a clear conscience? And there are many out there, I've met them, even Christians, that would say, you know, if you have a clear conscience, totally clear, you feel like, oh, I'm totally good with God, you actually might have a problem. And I want to say, no, you have a problem. Because you're lowering the effectiveness of Christ's priesthood if you feel like there's still something wrong with me and God. There, we're still, there's still some kind of enmity between me and God that has to be fixed, otherwise I'm not with him. But it's based completely on Jesus' sacrifice. I don't know about many of you, I grew up in a Christian tradition where um, it's believed that Jesus dies on the cross, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, and then from here on out, you need to obey enough or else you need to get saved again. You've heard testimonies. I think I, my wife has shared it many times. That How many times did you walk down the aisle and get baptized at that first church? <laughs> like, like a dozen times. Like every, every Sunday, like, yeah, I did stuff this week. Walk down and get baptized again. Maybe the church was so big they just didn't notice it's, it's the same girl. And I dunked you last week for real this time, you know. But if the church peddles a gospel that is incomplete, such that the, priest of, the priesthood of Jesus Christ gets you in the door but doesn't finish the job, then maybe we should get baptized again. Maybe we should say the sinner's prayer again. Maybe we should get saved again and again and again. But then sets in the paranoia. Which sins get me out? How do I discern between the sins that are okay and then as the Catholic Church would call it, the mortal sins, the cardinal ones, the important ones, the big ones, and then there's these, you could just say a couple of prayers, but then these, you're really messed up if you do these. How do I discern that? How do I discern that? A little bit of dirt, a lot of bit of dirt, how much dirt before I have to wash again? And what the author of Hebrews is, is saying, he's writing to the Hebrews, whose entire background was this system of works and this system of of 
not, they didn't believe that they got salvation because of their works, but it was through these sacrifices that the priest would offer, you understand. And so we're not talking about brands of Christians that don't think the cross is effective. We're talking about a brand of Christianity that thinks the cross is not effective enough. So if you lay awake at night, sometimes wondering if something happened to you, if this storm scared you and you live near here and you thought, ooh, something happened to me, am I, am I, really, am I really there? Oh, Lord, please, I, I, I didn't mean to steal that pack of gum. You still don't get it. Now, if you read those passages in Hebrews carefully, the book of Hebrews has five warning passages, right? With in between explaining this priesthood of Christ. And those five warning passages are hey, by the way, the cross is not a free ticket to heaven and you get to go live however you want because then you don't get it either. You haven't placed faith in Christ. Remember that whole hall of faith in Hebrews 12? He says, by faith this guy did this, and by faith this guy did that. In other words, faith does stuff in life. Faith doesn't produce, I don't care about God, I hate him. Faith produces a desire to draw near to him. But how can I draw near if I'm a sinner? Christ's perfect peace is. So we don't earn it. Most of us would agree with that, I think. Hopefully all of us agree with that. You don't earn salvation. But the point I want to score with you is that you don't unearn it either. Because then at the end of the day, if you can unearn it, then you didn't earn it. I mean, you, it's a, it, you earn it then, right? But if Christ's priesthood is perfect, then it's not based on what I have to do. It's based on what he has already done. And if that's true, then I can draw near to this, yes, wrathful, yes, distant, Yes, holy God. We don't want to denigrate that. But we can draw near to him through Christ's perfect priesthood with confidence. As a father who desires that you be with him. He's not the grumpy dad that buries his head in a newspaper and tells you to go away when you scrape your knee and come in from the yard. That's not dad, not our heavenly father. He says, draw near. Draw near in confidence. I'll give you what you need to live the life you're supposed to live. I know it's hard for you to do it. I know it's difficult. Jesus is saying, I've been there. I've been there. Come on. Come talk. Come meet. And Jesus' name is Emmanuel because Emmanuel means God with us. And when John opens his his gospel in John chapter 1, he says, Jesus was the word, and he came and tabernacled among his people. Jesus is how we have a relationship with God. Don't doubt it. Rejoice in it. Rejoice that we serve a living, active God who secured a way for him to love you and be with you. Amen.